Welcome to the IJ for EU podcast. I'm Timothy Large from the International Press Institute in Vienna. And I'm Milica Militic, also from IPI. I'm Vladimir Sinarova from the European Journalism Center in Maastricht. And together we run the IJ for EU fund, supporting cross-border watchdog journalism in Europe. Let's give a shout out too to our other partner in the IJ for EU consortium, the European Center for Press and Media Freedom. Now, Zlatina and Blitzer, I woke up this morning thinking, oh my God, can you believe it's already December? I don't know where this year has gone, but it is getting colder, the nights are getting shorter, the year is almost over, and I thought it might be a good chance just to look back at a few of the really incredible investigations that IJ for EU has supported. Because these are stories that have made headlines across the continent. They've reached millions of people, uh, sparking debate. They've influenced policy. I think it's fair to say they've shone a bit of a light into the darkness. How's the year been for you two? Anything struck you in particular looking back? I wanted to say we did a lot, but actually, no, we helped a lot of journalists to do a lot. So that makes me feel a bit better about this year. <laughs> Yeah, I can only add that I look forward to the next one and I hope that it will be as successful as this one. I did a little experiment this morning when I woke up so depressed about <laughs> the end of the year and I put into chat GPT, I said, chat GPT, write me a joke about investigative journalists. And do you want to hear what it came up with? Come on. <laughs> Make us laugh. Tell us. Tell us. It's, it's pretty good. Why did the investigative journalist bring a ladder to the interview? Why? Because they wanted to get to the bottom of things. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought you would say because the person they're interviewing is so tall. <laughs> I, I asked it again. Why did the investigative journalist become a gardener? Because they were experts at digging up dirt. Oh, that's okay. pretty poor. I like this one better, I have to admit. <laughs> You'll love the third one. Why did the investigative journalist always carry a pencil? Because they wanted to draw their own conclusions. <laughs> okay. Let's okay. Not, uh... <laughs> this was a pity I... laugh. <laughs> Yes, I don't think we'll be using ChatGBT too much more for our podcasts. Uh, listen, on a serious note, uh, Milica and Slatina, I, I just wanted to reflect a bit um, before we get into really discussing some fantastic stories that we, we've seen this year about the state of the world in general. Um, I mean, I think it's fair to say that media pluralism in Europe is deteriorating in a rather alarming way. We all know the, the problems that are plaguing the news industry. You've got your digital disruption and your, your broken business models and your tumbling revenues, all of that stuff that's well rehearsed. But if you throw into the mix declining media freedom in parts of Europe, especially which are very hostile to independent media, it's no wonder that large parts of the continent are turning into what some people are calling news deserts. And the result of all this is a withering space for public interest news. And the knock-on effect of that, I think, is a diminished public sphere. And the loser of all of this is democracy. 
And I don't need to tell you that independent journalism plays a critical role in uh, promoting transparency, accountability, checks on abuse of power, all that kind of good stuff. But investigative journalism is often the first victim of these forces that are undermining pluralism. And we know from our own work that investigative journalism requires time, money, resources, and newsrooms these days just don't have them. And that's especially true also of freelancers who really don't have them. So when it comes to tackling the kinds of transnational subjects that affect millions of people across Europe, this is a real crisis, a real crisis for society. And that's why support programs like IJ for EU are so important, I think. So I just wanted to kind of set the scene, but let's get now to the, the really juicy stories. And of course, listeners who are interested in following up any of this stuff can go to our website, which is IJ for EU. That's IJ and the digit for EU.net. Okay, now let me tell you what has struck me this year, and then I'd like to ask you what, what, what your impressions are. But I've been really amazed at just how global many of the investigations have been this year. So these are stories that start in Europe, but they take you to Myanmar or Sudan or Brazil or the Democratic Republic of Congo. And maybe we can come back to that in, in a minute. Um, Zatina, anything you've noticed in particular? Yes, uh, I have been impressed by many things, but I was quite impressed with the ambitiousness of the projects in this last edition of the program. And I have to say that teams really lived up to, to what they promised and the range of topics that have been covered, the quality of the work, the way in which they tackled challenges in this rather eventful year, I, I would call it. Um, all these have been remarkable. What I could not not notice was that uh, there were quite a few investigations on migration, so this is unfortunately still a very hot issue. And what I really liked was that we had uh, quite a few very strong photojournalistic projects. But what I'm particularly happy and proud to see is the effectiveness of the collaborations and the level of sharing and trust and support that existed and still exists within most of the teams. And I think this is really valuable and, and this is a crucial element of what we are trying to support and sustain with, with our program. What about you, Belitsa? Any notable themes looking back? Hmm, I don't Maybe, the, you know, sometimes, usually when you think about investigative journalism, you always end up thinking about politicians and, and big profit and mafia and corruption and stuff like that. But what I really like that I notice is more stories about environmental journalism, about climate. That's a good part <laughs> that, that I notice. We get more and more applications, uh, journalists just willing to cover that and more knowledgeable on how to cover it because that's not easy. It's a very complex topic to cover. What I didn't like is that after we uh, saw investigations and results, we actually ended up talking about corruption and politicians again. So <laughs> there's a plus side and minus side, I would say. But I think that environmental journalism is growing stronger and we can prove that. <laughs> Again, just check our website. There are a lot of great stories from how we handle um, toxic material. What do we do with, the, with our garbage? How do we store it? Um, how do we uh, 
uh, deal with, uh, I don't know, lithium and how do we extract that? There's some insane stories how we got it from, how we get it from Argentina to Europe. Again, proving how global all these stories are. So it's like a new field that I, I noticed that is developing and, uh, and, and we have more and more stories covering that. That's, I think that's great. Absolutely. Uh, and let's come back to that environmental theme a little bit later, because there's so much to dig into there. Uh, another thing that struck me has been the, just the number of egregious breaches of sanctions against Russia um, following Putin's invasion of Ukraine. I mean, we have a number of stories that have really caught companies and others red-handed in just breaching these, these sanctions. So I wouldn't mind talking a bit about that. Um, we've had stories on many other things, of course, of surveillance, trafficking, labor exploitation, cryptocurrency, so much more. Um, so where to begin? Why don't we take these, these big trends one at a time? And maybe we could start by going back to my point about the, and Melissa's point just now, about the global nature of many of these investigations. AJ for world. IJ for world, absolutely. Maybe that should be the new, <laughs> the new edition's name if we have one. Recently, Militz and I interviewed some journalists behind an investigation into what's going on in Sudan right now. Um, it's, it's about the EU's obsession with stopping migration and how this has given legitimacy to some very nasty characters in Sudan, including a former dictator in, in, indicted for genocide and the current leader of the notorious Janjaweed paramilitary thugs that have made the word Darfur and genocide are uh, synonymous for many years. And what blew me away was just how bad the situation in Darfur now is, according to these journal journalists. It's much worse today than it was 20 years ago. Um, 20 years ago, when Darfur was very much in the news, villages were being burned to the ground. As these journalists put it, today whole cities are being burnt to the ground. And yet we, we never hear about this. This is a really underreported story. So I'd highly recommend um, you to listen to that podcast, uh, which, which we've just released. Um, but I wanted to talk now about an investigation called The Gold Chain. Now, we all like a bit of gold bling, don't we? Especially as Christmas season comes. And uh, I, I've been ring shopping myself for, for Yelena. So I've been thinking a lot about gold <laughs> these days. Um, but this, this story is about how European gold importers are turning a blind eye to something going on thousands of kilometers away in the Amazon in Brazil. Did you know that there's a link between illegal gold mining and deforestation? I didn't, I didn't actually. Yeah. Well, here's an astonishing fact for you. Illegal gold mining in the Amazon accounts accounts for the destruction of 1.2 million hectares in about a decade. That's almost 10% of total forest loss during that period. And we and we never hear about this. So this is a really interesting investigation that basically delves into how players in Europe's gold industry are constructing this intricate what they call a gold chain using Dubai as a hub for essentially laundering gold to allow refineries in Switzerland and Belgium and Italy, places like that, to import gold that's been illegally mined in the Amazon with catastrophic consequences for the forest and for the human rights of people living there without any link to those 
those um, those crimes. So I, I found that really fascinating, and that was done purely by by freelancers, I believe. Uh, Melissa, those are a couple of stories that have caught my eye. Anything? Yeah, yeah. The, speaking about traveling for thousands of kilometers to bring the story to Europe uh, is like my my favorite one is just following the garbage for thousands of kilometers to Southeast Asia. So how do we what do we do in Europe and Northern America? What do we do with the plastic waste? We just ship it to Southeastern Asia. So what I read in one of the investigations uh, supported by IJ for, for EU is that until recently, plastic waste was shipped to China. I think in 2018, they changed legislation and that's not allowed anymore. But this garbage is, is, is like water, you know, it finds a crack. So instead of China, now it's shifted to Southeast Asia, to Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam, and of course, after a couple of years, those countries changed their legislation and the water garbage had to find another way somewhere. And guess what? It ended up in Myanmar. It's, I don't think it's a coincidence and their research and the investigation showed that. Like why Myanmar? We all know what happened there in 2001 and military coup. And we know that it's a very repressive regime out there. So what you can do is just use it as an opportunity to get rid of a plastic waste. And this story, is, it makes me so mad because it's about people out there. Like they didn't suffer enough with the regime they have now, but it's like all this waste there. And we're talking about Southeast Asia with the monsoons and all this plastic garbage there that clogs sewages. It, it easily catches fire. It's toxic. It's dangerous. But also in Myanmar, it's not that easy to get on the street and just protest and, I don't know, ask for new legislation. Who dares to deal with that, with, with, with plastic, plastic dumps? So this was, this was really interesting story because, as you said, it's so far away, but still it's our garbage. And the investigation showed, identified some companies and some brands that our listeners will be very familiar with who are behind this, who most of them, of course, were surprised by the results of investigation and they will look into it. But how do we deal with that? To, to ban uh, waste export? It's, it's only fair to do that unless on the receiving end, country has capacity to deal with it, to recycle it, to store it safely, which I'm sure it's not the case with Myanmar. So, yeah, I can't believe we're talking about Myanmar, but that's where plastic dump ends. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, that's called the West's Next Plastic Stump. You can see, yeah. uh, Zlatina, any global stories on your radar? Yes, I would like to mention one of my favorites, although like most of the investigations that we have supported are my favorites. Uh, but this one is called The Edge of Europe. Oh, this is very... one of my favorites too. I love yes, this one. Exactly. It's <laughs> one of your favorites because it dates back a little bit. Uh, it was delayed and the team actually faced quite a few challenges, also because of COVID. Uh, but in the end, they were able to complete it and they take us to the Comoros Archipelago, which lies in the Strait of Mozambique and very close to Madagascar. Uh, and part of that archipelago is uh, also the French overseas territory of Mayotte. And that is where the team 
consisting of two freelance journalists stage us and uh, reports on the very serious issue of migration because migration has become a huge problem. Many Comorians flee, uh, mainly due to corruption, the scarcity of natural resources, political persecution, and mainly they flee um, to Mayotte. And apparently the situation has worsened so much that currently there are more illegal immigrants on Mayotte now that there are registered citizens. And this is where also you can find the largest slum in the European Union. And currently it has more than 25,000 of inhabitants. This is a number that, that really struck me. And I was completely ignorant of the situation or of, of those numbers. And in response to this huge surge in irregular migration, apparently the French government has responded and has passed Special legislation that apply for for the area, and uh, human rights organizations describes this legislation as as inhumane. So really, it's a very impressive investigation, and it, it takes us to the to the heart of a migration crisis that very few people are aware of. Uh, while well, it actually is playing out on the literally on the frontier of the European Union. So this is one that I would definitely recommend. I love yeah. I love stories like that. I love stories that make me open the world map <laughs> and zoom in and start clicking because I really I I had no idea about any of this. And then you ended up on Wikipedia page and you start reading and obsessing about it. So I'm at that stage now. Yes, and in addition to that, in addition to that, I just wanted to mention that actually this is one of the very strong photojournalistic projects. So it's really uh, worth taking a look at. What would another one be? Um, another one would definitely be the jungle. Uh, oh, the jungle, the yes. Sit up kind of project, sit up and just listen kind of project, which is again carried out by by two freelance journalists uh, and led by Hamri Azadek, who is a photojournalist. Uh, and it actually documents the conditions that migrants and refugees face in one of Europe's last primeval forests, which is along the Polish-Belarusian border. Uh, those asylum seekers, they are mainly from the Middle East and Africa. And what this project shows, also by means of some really impressive photojournalism, is that these people face many, many obstacles, including walls, physical walls, like a wall that was uh, built by, by the Polish government, violent pushbacks, but also the criminalization of, of humanitarian aid. Um, the treatment that these people receive also is in great contrast to that of people who fled to Poland from Ukraine, for example, as a result of, of the Russian invasion. And this is an aspect that the project also touches upon, and I think it is important and interesting to, to look at, because migrants from Ukraine, they received uh, health insurance, legal status, which allowed them to, to go to school, to, to work, to receive social benefits. The people who were hosting them were receiving aid from the state. While quite the contrary, the people that are caught up in, in the jungle, the refugees and asylum seekers from the Middle East and Africa, they have been trapped in that source for, for a very long time, enduring extreme weather conditions without food and water in the winter. 
and providing humanitarian aid and has even been criminalized. So that's an investigation that is super interesting and it was also very challenging both on the human and professional level for the team. Um, and the project lead, Hanna, she has raised and discussed some very important ethical considerations as were related to it. So this is definitely a must-read, must-see kind of project for me. With absolutely stunning photographs as well. Yeah, it's amazing. I really love that contrast. You know, like first time I heard about the about this story, you know, like how misleading the title was, The Jungle. So you expect something exotic and nice. And, and there's like photos documenting the beauty of that nature, the surrounding, and harsh conditions, the, the temperature is minus God knows what, the suffering of the people there, all the dangers in that jungle. It really is a jungle, but a different type of jungle one would, one would expect. It's really powerful, powerful. Powerful story. stuff. And that story really went far and wide. Uh, those photos in particular were picked up by media all around the world, including Japan, South Korea. I mean, it really, really resonated. So, well, yeah, yeah. That makes me think that another big theme we've had this year really is the treatment of migrants and refugees seeking to come into Europe. There have been so many stories on on this topic, obviously. One that just came out the other day, actually, was giving up your body to enter Europe. Yes, that's another one of ours, as I like to to call them. And as I mentioned, uh, there were quite a few projects on, on the topic of migration. This one is also very interesting, which sounds a little bit like a cliche at this point, but it is. Uh, what is remarkable is that it was carried out by a very young team of freelance journalists. So I really admired the efforts and the results that they were able to, to achieve. And they addressed and exposed a very sensitive and alarming issue, yet rather uh, underreported, I would say. Uh, this project covers the topic of a forced undressing and humiliating genital searches that refugees face while they're traveling or, or, or while they're attempting to, to enter Europe. And stories follow a silent seeker that reports really on humiliating genital searches conducted without privacy, sometimes with the same gloves, sometimes conducted by men or women. Like it, it's a very long list of really humiliating and dreadful things. Um, and lawyers, NGOs, people who have gone through this entire ordeal, um, they believe that the aim of these humiliations is to actually deter refugees and irregular migrants from entering Europe. It does not really work, but these occurrences are still happening at European borders. And I believe it is a story that really needs to be told. And uh, yeah, that attention needs to be drawn to it. Absolutely. There's another one. There's another good one. Very interesting one. It was interesting for me to see how one very old and traditional system of transferring money that exists for ages is being used again nowadays, um, especially when it comes to migrants and because we are, we are talking about migration. So, so you're probably referring to the Havala investigation. Yeah. There is also the Havala investigation, another one of my favorites. I think that's needless to, to say at this point. 
it was carried out by a team of six journalists led by Elena Leder. And it actually shows how the tightening migration policies in Europe have caused migrants and asylum seekers to, to become more and more reliant on this ancient Havala system, which I have no idea what it was or what it meant. But apparently it dates back to the days of the Silk Road. And it is an informal system for, for transferring money based exclusively on interpersonal trust. But that means that it also makes cash up to track because cash actually does not physically move. And that was a major challenge that was uh, faced by the team working on the project as well. Uh, they conducted on the ground reporting in Iraq, Turkey, Greece, Italy, France, Spain, and the United Kingdom. They went undercover on Telegram. They spoke with more than 50 sources in the process of working on that investigation, including smugglers, Havala brokers or bankers, as, as they called, experts in the system, people on the move. They also talked to families that had lost their loved ones while these people were trying to, to get to Europe. And this is really a fascinating investigation. It, it shows that this Havala system, it can serve both as a bank for smugglers on the one hand, but it is also an insurance for, for migrants because sometimes it is their only way of mitigating the risk of being scammed. So that is another story that really made a splash. Um, and it is definitely one that uh, I would recommend and revisit over and over again. But I have been talking too much. And <laughs> please tell me about your favorite projects now, because otherwise I will simply continue talking for another <laughs> hour or so. Let me tell you about a few that I remember, which are about sanctions busting, which I, I, I mentioned earlier was a big thing this year. We've had all kinds of stories on sanctions busting. Um, one I think was called Russian Escape, and that looked at how Russian oligarchs are evading sanctions. Basically, the European Union imposed sanctions on tens of billions of euros of assets after Moscow invaded Ukraine. Uh, and there are all kinds of ways that these oligarchs are evading these sanctions. Another one was called Dangerous Diesel. Uh, a really nice little story, actually, by freelancers as well. Uh, and this looked at how EU-based companies are defying sanctions to provide fuel to Transnistria. Now, some of you will know that Transnistria is this pro-Russian separatist region in Moldova, Moldova being a new EU candidate country right on the, the border with Ukraine, uh, but squeezed between U Ukraine and Romania. And it's in this Transnistria region where Ru Russia has a whole army based. It's the, got troops in the 14th Army. It's also got huge stockpiles of arms and ammunitions. Uh, and obviously, being all fueled up, there's quite a big threat uh, to Ukraine just across the border. So that, that was a very interesting one, I thought. But actually, there are two that I'd like to single out as particularly um, splash worthy. And the first one has to do with drones. And this one is called Russia's War, Europe's Burden. This is a joint investigation by a, a Danish freelancer, whose name is Nikolai Hummann, and the German magazine Der Spiegel, and 
Air Wars, which is a British transparency watchdog that looks at how conflict affects civilian communities around the world. And this investigation showed that despite sanctions, hundreds of components are making their way into drones used by Russia in its war against Ukraine. But guess where these components come from? Europe, European companies, EU-based companies, despite these th sanctions. And this investigation had a huge impact. The reporting led to sanctioning the, of three export companies featured in the investigation, and it led to the arrest of the director of a German components manufacturer for involvement in supplying parts to Russia's military industry. Also, interestingly, as, a, as an aside, the investigation delved really deep into Russia's use of Iranian-made kamikaze drones and how all of that works. Very, very fascinating stuff. And the other standout investigation for me is called Diffusing a Russian Carbon Bomb. And this one, speaking about global, it takes us all the way into the Arctic in the far north of Siberia, where Russia is building a gigantic gas extraction and liquefaction project, an LNG project, um, that critics say will produce more than a billion tons of carbon emissions over its lifetime. And that makes it what critics call one of these so-called carbon bombs. And there are hundreds of these carbon bombs worldwide that if taken together, if they release all of this carbon into the atmosphere, they're going to completely undermine our fight as a planet to keep climate change in check and, and to you know meet the, the goals laid out in the Paris Agreement. And this investigation reveals, yet again, sanctions busting, that European companies have been providing high-tech equipment, engineering services, all kinds of things like that, to this massive facility in Siberia, despite its impact on the environment, and of course, despite those sanctions following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and this really ramps up pressure on the European Union to, to target this and to stop these kind of uh, you know abuses of sanctions. Yeah, and there you go. Another another strong, powerful, scary environmental journalism story, as I said. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> One of my favorites, yeah. Somehow all those environmental uh, uh, investigations are scary. Huh? It tells a lot. <laughs> the one that freaks me out is the forever pollution. Oh, God, yes. Because both yes. words are... Go on, go on. It's, it's terrifying. <laughs> are freaking Absolutely me terrifying. out. What is worse than pollution? Well, forever pollution, <laughs> the one that stays forever. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't, I don't want to sound like overdramatic, but it changed my life. <laughs> um, no, it, it, it's a joke because after, after reading the, the story, I changed some practices here around the kitchen. <laughs> For example, I got rid of all these non-sticking pans, right? So, <laughs> so what, well, yeah, what, what we are talking about actually what kind of pollution uh, we're talking about here as forever pollution, the one that's really hard to get rid of, is um, investigation uh, into these highly dangerous substances. It's, it's not one. It's actually what I learned is a class of 4,000 four, uh, 4, dangerous chemicals. Uh, and they have some very complicated name. I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but uh, short is 
PFAS, yeah? And that's the one we should be avoiding, but we are not because it's widely used in the production of everyday stuff we use in commercial products, including uh, pans in the, in the kitchen. And yeah, the problem is it's almost impossible to get, get rid of it. Like once it ends up in soil, it's easily spreads. It's in the air, it's in the water, it's everywhere. And it doesn't seem we're doing much to get rid of it. Of course, there are some initiatives to change legislations, but yeah, there is initiative and there is lobbying. And just as I said, once you start digging and dealing with environmental issues, you end up covering lobbying and, and, and politics. But yeah, this is a scary story. It's very impressive. It's uh, what I, what I, there, there are a couple of things that I like about this investigation. First of all, it's like a huge, I think it was 18 uh, newsrooms in Europe that work together because it's not a local problem. If you, if you go to their website, foreverpollution.eu, and you look at that scary map of Europe, you can see where you can find these uh, toxic, very dangerous substances that are um, linked to cancer, uh, infertility. It, it just makes you think, and it's just out there. You can zoom in. You can find your hometown. You can find your favorite uh, summer destination almost all the dots are there so that's one thing that was impressive that a lot of the huge big team that worked on it to cover the whole europe and also this this direct link between big investigation and your everyday life you realize that these substances are everywhere including as i said whenever i, I yeah whenever i make pancakes nowadays whatever i flip that pancake i think of non-sticking material and, and what is it <laughs> well how bad is it for me so, but yeah, that's the whole point behind it, right? To make us think about it and to think about these things in our everyday life, right? So, actually, I think it has had the right impact on you, and I hope that more people will visit that website. I'm doing it right now while you are explaining. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's scary. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there are so many more stories we could talk about. And I'm aware that the, the clock is ticking and maybe we should wind up pretty soon. Maybe I just wanted to ask you too, if you have any New Year's resolutions. <laughs> given Maybe it's too early, early to think about it. So I can start by saying that I don't have any list of resolutions based on the success or the lack of it uh, from previous years. Uh, but work-wise, and when it comes to IG40 and our program, while very small part of me really wants the demand for programs like ours to, to decrease, I'm also pretty convinced that it will not be the case. So I just hope that we'll have the chance to work with as many and as exciting investigations and teams in the future in the next year. Uh, as we uh, had the chance to do to, to in this last round. Um, other than that, I think we should just wish for health and resilience because that's uh, one key word that has stuck around. Um, and I think that this is, this is the main resolution or wish that I have at this point. I don't have any resolution. <laughs> I must disappoint you. But I have a lot of wishes. <laughs> I have a lot of wishes I'm willing to share. <laughs> no, speak it. Maybe creating another type of pan in which we can safely make our pancakes. 
that, that's a good idea. No, no, yes. jo jo jokes aside, <laughs> like my wish for investigative journalism in 2024 is to, yeah, to, to grow, to be strong, resilient, healthy, fit, for investigative journalists to work together, to be well organized, at least as organized as organized crime, <laughs> to be stronger than bad guys, which means to, to work together, to, I wish them good health. I wish them good digital hygiene. <laughs> be careful, <laughs> be careful how you, what you do with the data, how you store it, how you communicate it, uh, communicate more. And if IJ for you could help to bring you together and not only help with funding, but with anything else, uh, yeah, we will we'll be there for you in 2024. Absolutely. I mean, I can't top those resolutions and wishes that they're absolutely spot on, uh, except just to echo what you say there about health and uh, well-being. I'm aware that many investigative journalists in particular uh, have really suffered burnout in the past year with the stresses, the, the lack of resources and so on. It's a really difficult job and it does take its toll. And we see that in the teams. We see that speaking every day to, to our grantees. Uh, so I, I wish everybody a, a good chance to to relax over the holiday season, uh, recharge their batteries, and take take good care of their their mental health as well as their their physical security and so on. It's been a pleasure working with you this year, and I really look forward to working with you next year and all our wonderful IJ for EU grantees. Uh, all the best, and yeah, see you soon. So. Stay tuned for our next IJ4EU podcast coming soon to a streaming platform near you. Take care.